Did it. For those of you that that's the first time you've ever seen that, that's uh, to buy me time to get up here so that I can preach. Uh, uh, I, I love singing. Um, that is, uh, and I and I love being able to sit in the congregation and sing. I don't know if these guys can can hear hear you singing, but um, I, I mean, all throughout church history, voices were the main instrument, right? And uh, and I think maybe the people that designed this building a long time ago kind of had that in mind with the acoustics. And so hearing you guys sing and engage with songs that you're even unfamiliar with, uh, I, I can still hear you, and uh, and certainly the Lord. Uh, hears us as we're we're worshiping Him in spirit and in truth through song, and so so that kind of stuff excites me. So thank you for singing out this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Second Corinthians, chapter ten. Second Corinthians, chapter ten. That's where we're going to camp out. We've been in the um, uh, in this book for a while now, and uh, for those of you who. Uh, since we've been here, we've so this is no, this is week number three, I think, and so we've been uh, so I think those of you Deer Park Charter members, you've been in this book now for four weeks, and so um, so this is we're we're on chapter ten, and uh, and the Apostle Paul has penned this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and um, and we're this morning going to see some strategies that the Apostle Paul employs in order to kind of shock the consciences of those that he's writing to. Um, G.K. Chesterton, if any of you are familiar with him, he was a, he was a Catholic theologian and a writer and a philosopher, uh, and he, he wrote one of my favorite short pieces of fiction uh, called The Man Who Was Thursday. I don't know if anybody has ever heard of that little short piece of fiction or not, but Chesterton um, was uh, pretty sarcastic and funny in the way that he wrote, and he one time defined a gentleman as someone who never offends anyone accidentally. And... Uh, <laughs> For those of you who don't get that, you'll get it later. Um, but this morning, I think you're going to see uh, that strategy uh, employed by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul offends in our text this morning, as you'll see. He offends people strategically through a, a type of sarcastic rebuke. In fact, sarcasm is used uh, all throughout Scripture, and I think sometimes that's lost on us because we kind of give it a plain black and white reading without reading uh, uh, the authorial intent behind Scripture or the, uh, the emotion behind the, the very words of God that were penned by human authors. And, uh, and so this morning as I'm reading through, I'm going to kind of make note of that so that it sticks out to you, so that maybe next time as you read, you'll, you'll see these kinds of uh, strategies um, uh, later on in your, in your Bible reading. Um, but to just get our bearings quickly, um, over this entire letter in 2 Corinthians, in chapters 1 through 9, which we just finished last week, uh, the Apostle Paul is dealing with a part of the congregation at Corinth that is uh, repentive. This, 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 uh, in chapters 1 through 9, we uh, even got to talk about a couple of weeks ago uh, godly sorrow versus sorrow of the world. And we, we understood that godly sorrow leads to a genuine repentance that leads to life 
whereas a, uh, a an, uh, sorrow of the world is a counterfeit sorrow. People can be sad and still not be motivated by the Holy Spirit to repent and trust in Christ Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul kind of gave us those two different types of people, and uh, we have been both types, all of us, in our lives at some point. And, uh, and so Paul, the Apostle Paul, for the large um, uh, for the, the entirety of chapters 1 through 9, he's addressing these repentive uh, Corinthians that from the uh, letter before 1 Corinthians was penned that we don't have to the letter after 1 Corinthians was penned that was delivered by Titus that we don't have, this congregation, uh, for the most part, began to repent and trust in Christ Jesus. But now uh, we see the Apostle Paul, he shifts and he talks to another part of the congregation in Corinth. And we know that he's shifting by the, the actual word now that you may see in the text. Um, he's, he's turning, and in the rest of this book, Paul is addressing the unrepentant minority in this church body here, uh, and he's addressing these false teachers that have infiltrated uh, the church at Corinth that are leading these people astray. And so, so over the next couple of weeks, as we finish up 2 Corinthians, we know that the Apostle Paul is addressing this unrepentant minority that's being influenced by false teachers. And, and in order to confront them, he uses some very strong um, sarcastic rebukes in, in the hopes that he may shock them into repentance and consequently run away the, the wolves that are in sheep's clothing. And so let's read this chapter together and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to make some practical observations from it. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says this, Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you. Okay, that's some sarcasm he's using that'll come clear later, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though, we, for though we walk according to the flesh, there's some sarcasm there that we'll tease out, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought captive into captivity, into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Verse 7, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced of himself that he is in Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is in Christ, even so we are in Christ. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for our edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. That's some sarcasm there. And then he quotes these false, false teachers here in verse 10. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such person consider this, that we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Verse 12, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commended themselves. 
sarcasm there, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall greatly be enlarged. We, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, verse 17, and I think this is really Paul's thesis, but he who glories... Let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you for your word. And thank you, God, that you used men like the Apostle Paul to give us templates for how to deal with um, being distracted. Uh, away. Uh, Paul has given us templates on how to keep our mind fixed on Christ Jesus. And so, Lord... Uh, help us learn from his strategy, Lord. Help us learn from the concerns that he had for this minority here at Corinth. Lord, may we learn from it. May we flee from being led astray. May we flee from those things which fight for our attention that may distract us from worshiping you in spirit and in truth. And so help us over the next few moments as we we look through your word, and I pray your Holy Spirit would give us soft hearts. God, help us by your Holy Spirit to repent and to in the areas that we need to repent of so that we may feast on Christ more fully. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, and, and the notes that we've provided for you are in your bulletin, and, and you'll see the, the blanks filled in on the screens here, but uh, if you're taking notes, the first thing that I would have you, uh, that I would draw your attention to is that we honor Christ when we use Christ's methods. We honor Christ when we use Christ's methods. In verse uh, 10, the first couple of verses, Paul says, I'm pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And, and he talks about, uh, he's obviously being accused by these false teachers of being lowly when he's among uh, the people at Corinth, but bold when he's away from them. And uh, at this church, the church of Corinth, this minority did not value meekness and gentleness. They were, uh, they were power hungry. And we'll talk about these so-called super apostles in the coming weeks that they're being, um, that they're being manipulated by. But, um, but uh, even when Jesus came in his incarnation, right, uh, people were, were shocked in that day and age that he was the Messiah, right? He, he should have come as this political figure, but he came, as this, he came and he served and he humbled himself and he added humanity to his deity. And, and so the ways of God are not the ways of the world. And this minority here is getting influenced by this worldly teaching, and they're beginning to despise the very spirit of Christ, the very way that Christ Jesus ministered. And, and the apostle Paul is saying, I am ministering Paul, who, who according to Acts chapter 18, who planted the church at Corinth, he's saying, I am ministering the way that Christ Jesus ministered with meekness and with gentleness. Uh, Matthew, speaking of gen uh, the ministry of Jesus, he, 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 talks, uh, uh, he says that Jesus says this, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax 
he will not quench, which we know Jesus, this is a fulfillment of, of the prophet Isaiah. But our, our Savior, Christ Jesus, he's, he's meek, he's gentle in his saving work. He left glory, like I said a moment ago, when he came down in his, his incarnation. And, and Paul documents in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself even to the point of death, right? Even to the point of dying on the cross like a criminal. And so this work... This work of reconciliation that, that Jesus accomplished, it took humility. Right? It took humility and, and it took meekness and it took gentleness. And, and Jesus, when he left this work of reconciliation behind in his ascension, after he declared that it was finished from the cross and by the power of the Holy Spirit bodily and eternally rose from the grave, he left us, he left his disciples, and, and consequently he left those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ this ministry of reconciliation. And not only did he, he leave us with this ministry of reconciliation, but he expects that we do this ministry of reconciliation in the same way that he did the ministry of reconciliation. It takes being Christ-like in our ministry if we want to accomplish that, right? And, and, a, and a part of being like Christ is modeling the methods of Christ, right? Jesus came to seek and save the lost, but that's not all Jesus came to do. Jesus came to seek and save the lost in a certain manner, right? God cares about the process, not just the, the result. And I'd even argue that, that the result isn't honoring to the Lord if if, if, even if it's a seemingly good result, if our process doesn't honor the Lord. And, and so Christ wasn't just concerned about seeking and saving the lost, or saving the lost. There was this seeking bit, right? And he did this seeking bit in a certain manner, right? The ministry of Jesus isn't an ends justify the means type of ministry. And, and I'll make this practical at the expense of um, offending some of you, but but campaigns are already starting for election seasons next year, right? That's already starting to happen. And in politics, a lot of times, they can end up bringing the worst out. Uh, that really, we can, blame it. we can blame external heats for our bad behavior, but really it's just the sin that resides in our hearts. And, and, and when there's external heats that begin to flare up, it draws out the sin that's already residing in our hearts. And, and, uh, and no, no better time showcases that than during political season, right? And, and um, you can look at the newspaper, you can look at headlines. For those of you that are on social media, uh, you, can, you can't be on there for a minute without thinking the world's about to explode. Uh, for those of you who don't have social media, God bless you, stay off of it. Um, but think about this, our method, right? The way that we engage with others, even those who, who disagree with us, either honors or dishonors the Lord, right? It either honors or dishonors the Lord. If you're a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, if you are one who is in Christ, you are an ambassador of Christ. You're not an American for Christ, right? You're an ambassador for Christ, and this is a global title. This is a global title. So our methods of dialogue, the things that we choose to fill our minds with, who we vote for, should be influenced by the reality that we're citizens of the new heavens and the new earth. We're not primarily citizens of the United States of America. And, and we have this promise in Daniel chapter 2 of just how sovereign our God is. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 to 22. And he, speaking of God, he changes the times and the seasons. 
He removes kings and he raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things and he knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. That was written while God's people were in Babylonian captivity. God removes kings. God raises up kings. God knows what's in the darkness. We don't serve an ignorant God, do we? We don't serve the God of the deist who set the world in motion and say, let's see how this plays out. That's not the God that we serve. But oftentimes our methods, the way that we engage with other people, the way that we talk, the way that we share the gospel, the way that we engage with things like politics, our methods seem to to indicate that we practically think that God is an ignorant God and that this world is spinning out of control. So, we need to engage with things like politics as citizens of the new heavens and the new earth, not as Americans. Our God isn't the God of America. He's the God of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Let me take this one step further. How we share the gospel matters, right? Move past politics. The way that we share the gospel matters. First, we, we need to get the gospel right. Right? And the gospel is that by nature, according to the scripture, we're all enemies of God. Right? That's our natural position apart from outside intervention is that we are enemies of God. We're children of wrath. And God could have left us in that state and he would have been righteous to do so. He's the king. But, but he looked down on us. And he looked down on us with grace and with mercy, and with compassion, and with love. And, and, and before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us to be Christians. He chose us to be sons and daughters. And how exactly did he accomplish that? Right? I began to talk about it a minute ago, but is that Jesus, who is truly God, is truly God, became truly man in the incarnation. And he lived in the shadow of the cross for for his entire life, and he wore our infirmities and our weaknesses his entire life, and he was executed like a criminal on the cross. And our sins, the sins of believers, was by the power of the Holy Spirit cast on Christ Jesus, and God poured out every ounce of his wrath for our sins onto Christ Jesus on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus declared what? It is finished. It is finished. God's wrath for sins has been absorbed by me. There's no more wrath for those of us that are in Christ Jesus. There's no more. Christ's work is sufficient. Jesus, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent as God promised He would do in Genesis 3. 15. And the last enemy to be destroyed, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, is death. After Jesus declared it is finished by the power of God's Holy Spirit, God the Lord bodily and eternally raised Jesus from death to life. And that's offered to us. It's offered to us freely, right? Salvation is this gift from God. And not only is salvation a gift from God, but repentance and faith is a gift from God. It's truly a gift from God. Right? And, and, and that's our response. Repentance and faith, our response. 
And that happens when the, the, the Holy Spirit changes our hearts from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, as the prophet Ezekiel prophesied about. And when the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, we can't help but to respond in that repentance and that faith. It's irresistible because we realize how great and kind and merciful our God really is. Who would reject that? Who would reject that? Nobody who's experienced it, right? Nobody who's experienced it. And so we need to make sure that, that as we're sharing the gospel, that we're sharing the gospel correctly. And then as we gauge, we need to make sure that as we engage with unbelievers about this message, we, we address them with meekness and with gentleness. Right? Now, meekness and gentleness, it's not cowardliness. It's not timidity or silence. In Christ, we boldly announce the universal lordship of our King. Right? And, and we do so with the long game in view. Right? There, there are, as we announce the, the universal lordship all of, over all of life, he may save people instantly and praise God for that. But oftentimes, we don't see God saving people instantly. Right, We're announcing the gospel over and over to these same people. And over time, as we serve them and as we love them and as we're gentle with them and meek with them and we're a present in their lives and we're, we're washing their feet in a sense by the way that we're loving them while, while speaking about the gospel with our lips, the Lord over time chips away at that heart of stone and gives them this gift of salvation. And so we have to be a people, if we want to be committed to the methods of Christ, we have to be committed to, with the long game in view, knowing that, um, that the Holy Spirit saves. We can't save an individual, but we are called, since we are ambassadors for Christ, to be a continual presence in the lives of the people that God's put within our sphere of influence. And so we stay faithful in that. And so for those of you who have those people, those relationships in your life, continue on that path. Don't look at them as projects. Look at them as people created in the image of God who need to be transformed by the power of the gospel and stay committed to those people. Persevere in that. So Christ's methods matter. And, and Christ's methods should touch every aspect of our lives. So husbands, it should touch how you live with your wife in an understanding way. Women, it should touch how you respond to the spiritual oversight and repentance of your husband. It should touch how we all forgive one another and bear with one another. It should touch how we speak to and about other people. It should touch our work ethic, shouldn't it? Christ's method should affect how we use our private time, who we are when no one's looking. Children, Christ's meek and gentle method should inform how you respect your mom and dad. Are you listening, my, my kids? Are you, can you hear me? The, but nothing, nothing's off limits, right? Nothing's off limits. Nothing's off limits from, from Christ's authority. All of Christ should touch all of our lives, every aspect of it. Secondly, our enemy wants us to forget Christ in His finished work. Our enemy wants us to forget Christ in His finished work. Right? That's, that's verse 3 through 6. For though we walk in the flesh, okay, and part, Paul's using sarcasm here. He's saying... Uh, it's as if he's saying that even though we walk in the flesh according to these false teachers, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. 
Paul says elsewhere, Ephesians 6.12, for those of you that have been in church for any length of time, you know this, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We, we act like we do a lot of times, but we don't, right? We wrestle against principalities and powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Right? Specifically in this passage, in this 2 Corinthians passage, the battle is for the mind. That's, that's what we're seeing going on here, right? The battle is for the mind, and these false teachers are leading this minority of the church of Corinth to emphasize the wrong things and to care about the wrong things. Uh, I was speaking to some friends a few weeks ago, and uh, as we were speaking, I was reminded of a quote by an old dead preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you've ever heard of him, uh, and he had a concern that the very thing that would lead folks astray wasn't blatant false doctrine, especially in conservative churches. Uh, but his uh, concern was that uh, there would be a wrong emphasis from the pulpit on the wrong things. His concern that it was that there would be a wrong emphasis in the pew about the wrong things. And, and so... When that happens, we begin to talk and make less of talk about Christ less, make less of Christ, and get distracted pretty easily. And and I would commend um, just as a book for you, C.S. Lewis has a book called Screw Tape Letters that is a fantastic read. Just on, uh, it's a it's a fiction book, but just on the ways that the enemy can distract us from Christ. Right, the enemy wants to to distract us and tempt us to use a pulpit that doesn't make much of Jesus. Right, the enemy wants us to sing songs that don't make much of Jesus. The enemy wants us to pray prayers that don't make much of Jesus. The enemy wants us to here focus on renovations and leadership changes at a building that's been here since the 50s so that we don't make much of Jesus, right? The enemy wants to keep a room full of people to remain strangers and never engage with each other as if they're one family in Christ to prevent us from making much of Christ, to prevent us from being effective ambassadors for Christ. The enemy wants us to use the excuse of busyness to keep us from our devotions so that we won't make much of Christ in our private lives and consequently our public lives. The enemy wants to use bitterness because we disagree with changes, not because they're sinful, but because they're different so that we will forget Christ. The enemy wants to use the fear of man comparing ourselves with others or vanity or self-loathing or, or just thinking of self too much in general so that we won't focus on Christ. And the list, as you know, could go on and on and on. Now, how can we combat this biblically? How can we combat our enemy that's trying to prevent us from making much of Jesus Christ? And the answer is in verse 5, by bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. These distracted thoughts, right? These ones that keep you up at night, these ones that fill your mouths and your head, they should be brought to the feet of your obedient Savior, Jesus Christ, right? Christ has obeyed, therefore we can bring our disobedience to Him, Remembering again that he declared it is finished, right? So if you're in Christ, if you're a new creature in Christ, a new creation in Christ, you're not in bondage to sin. Christ has released you 
from that bondage. You're free to obey the Lord, albeit sinfully and imperfectly, but you're free to obey, not because there's anything great in you or great in me, but we're free to obey because Christ has obeyed fully, sufficiently to the will of the Father. And Christ's Holy Spirit, as believers, lives in us, dwells in us, and should be animating us and animating our obedience. A Presbyterian pastor in the 1800s who died at age 29, Robert Murray McShane, once said, for every one sin you think on, think of Christ ten times. Think of Christ ten times. I love that. Coastal Deer Park, don't let the enemy keep you from thinking about Christ and His finished work. Don't let the enemy keep you from thinking about what Christ has accomplished. Be committed to be being reminded each Lord's Day of Jesus. Be committed to surrounding yourself with a community, that, this community that, that will help you remember Jesus Christ. Be committed to gospel-centered repentance so that you can focus on Jesus Christ. And listen at this passage again. Right, we... In Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 18, I read this to open our time up. Speaking of Jesus, He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation, for by Him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have preeminence. That is your Savior. That's your Savior. Don't forget Christ. Don't forget Christ. Three, Christians edify each other towards uh, spiritual maturity in Jesus. Christians edify others towards spiritual maturity in Jesus. Do you, do you look at things according to the outward appearance, Paul asked? If anyone is convinced of himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is in Christ, even so we are Christ. Paul, again, is sarcastically showing the difference between his ministry and the ministry of these false teachers. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is uh, contemptible. Again, the, the sarcasm is... is, is it's what's going on, quoting the false teachers and what they say about him. And said, let a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Right? Paul's, he's not arguing here for his own sake, but for the sake of Christ's testimony. He's, he's saying that his ministry is consistent. Paul's ministry is consistent, consistent. This meekness and gentleness of Paul, again, was interpreted by these false teachers as inconsistency between Paul's letters and his face-to-face ministry with, with uh, the church at Corinth. And, and, and what Paul is saying is what you see is what you get, right? And, and the same thing should be true of those of us who call Deer Park our home. What you see is what you get, right? This side of eternity, our, our good deeds for the Lord, they're always going to be tainted by sin. Right? We all await the day when we can worship and serve the Lord in the new heavens and the new earth without, without the hindrance of sin and without the hindrances of, of suffering. But our motive should be to publicly and privately edify one another towards spiritual maturity in Christ Jesus. 
Uh, I grew up in a wonderful Christian home with godly parents, as, as many of you know. And this week I was on the phone with my dad, and he was talking about his early days as a, a young believer. And there were certain men in, in the church that my dad looked up to and that he respected as, as godly mentors. And, um, and over time, behind closed doors, uh, he began to see that the behind closed doors conversations weren't matching the public professions and the spiritual maturity that these men pretended to have on a Sunday morning um, service. And, um, and it really could have been a stumbling block for my dad, but by, by God's grace, um, my dad didn't worship these men. He worshiped the Lord and he saw it for what it was. And all of these men, they were former deacons. Um, every one of them have walked away from the faith and, um, and still in this day consist in their hard-heartedness toward the gospel. And I don't say that to say, uh, um, to condemn these men in some form of judgment. I say, but for the grace of God, there go we, right? And, and so the word of God needs to be washing over us. The word of God needs to be softening our hearts so that we can continue down this road of repentance of sin and faith in Christ Jesus. And so our eyes have to be fixed on Jesus and, and be committed toward not seeing one another as uh, we don't have anything in common, uh, we don't get along, et cetera, et cetera. We have the most intimate thing we could possibly have in common, and that is Christ Jesus. And so we just need to interact in that way with one another. Finally, Christians glory in the Lord, not themselves. All right. Paul says, verse 12, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. Right? There's some sarcasm again there, but the piece I want you to see, he who glories, again, this is Paul's thesis, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. And that, that's to me, sums up chapter 10 and, and really sums up this, in chapter, this entire letter of 2 Corinthians. And, and my prayer is that that would be said of this local church, that Coastal Deer Park would be a church committed to glorying in the Lord. Right? This group that Paul addressed, they despised meekness and gentleness and humility. And again, ironically, that's exactly how our Savior came. And so let us as a church model our Savior and not despise the things that this church despised. And so let's glory in the Lord through our methods, our process. Let's glory in the Lord by remembering Christ in His finished work. Let's glory in the Lord by encouraging each other towards spiritual maturity in Christ. And let's glory in the Lord by making much of Christ and not ourselves or our personal preferences. God has... He's given us a certain amount of days, right? Even the very hairs of our head are numbered. And, uh, and we need to be faithful stewards of the Lord. And so I'm asking you to evaluate this morning. How are you spending your days? Are you making much of Christ? Or are you wasting, are you wasting them distracted for temporal, meaningless reasons? So let's go to the Lord together honestly this morning in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you, you not only care about the end, but you care about the process, Lord. You care that Christ is our focus. And so, thank you, triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for loving us, for pursuing us, and for giving us handles on how we should live our lives, how we should think, how we should repent, how we should trust in Jesus. And so, Lord, help us, God. 
Lord, help us and forgive us, Lord. Forgive me where I, I fall short of that on such a regular basis, Lord. My eyes can easily be taken off of Christ, and so I ask for forgiveness of those times where I'm distracted. And help me. And help us as one body of believers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.